Man, isn't it wonderful to come and worship? For all the earth will praise his name. Amen. Well, that got us going quickly, and I want to invite you to fasten your seatbelts because I'm going to do something that I don't do too often. I'm going to, I'm going to share with you an entire chapter at one sitting today as we go through chapter 2, and I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to examine 16 verses of Scripture today, and I'm going to share with you in three methods, three ways that we can take something, because we truly do have, as the message is titled, something to gain from what Paul was sharing with the Corinthian church today, and I want to share that with you as we go through this, and I think you'll understand how we can consume 16 verses together. But I want to start off by welcoming all of you, and I hope as Brother Robert shared his testimony 23 years ago how God moved in his life, that God is moving in your life in such a way that you know without a shadow of a doubt that you are a child of God. And we're going to share how some ways that you can understand that from this message to gain that redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. I want to start off by talking about something many of you may be familiar with, and I've got an image of it, I believe, of, of the inauguration of our president. Many around the world, if you've ever been able to travel, if you've ever spent time in another country, if you've ever just listened to people dialogue about America... America still today, with all of our flaws, with all of our faults, still stands as a beacon of hope for the world. And most people will argue that the president of the United States, regardless of what party, regardless of what era that president served in, whether it was from George Washington's time forward, most would argue that the president of the United States is the most powerful man in the world. And in our inauguration ceremonies in January, you can see here the picture of the, the, the Capitol area and the White House. You can see the backside of it, something we celebrate, we call the inauguration. And great pomp and circumstances gather during this time frame, and you can see the seats are filled up, and the flags are waving, and the, the bands are marching, and all the motorcade is there, and all of this stuff. Why? Because they want to hear from a man who's going to give them a speech about something that got him elected and they're going to hear him talk about all the promises that he's never going to fulfill during his presidency, right? I say that jokingly. But that's what the hope is, that people gather to hear something that's going to change their life. And isn't it interesting that we put so much importance on that event? And I want to share with you how Paul relates something similar to his writing to the Corinthian church, because Paul in his writing to the Corinthian church wasn't in all the pomp and circumstance. Paul was writing in probably a, a damp room in a, a cave and using his transcriber, if you will, to, to help him write these messages. But Paul says, I didn't come to you, as we're going to see in a moment, with wisdom and lofty speech and all the pomp and circumstance that we so often flock to. Paul's going to give a very simple message to a church that he loves that was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you to turn to chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, and let's read the first five verses. You follow along in your Bible as I read the text from mine, and then we're going we're gonna to look at three specific things that we can see. Number one, what can we gain from the message? We can rest in the power of God, we can gain wisdom from God, and we can interpret the things of God. How do we do that? Well, let's dive into Second Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and let's look at how do we do that. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in your pew. You're welcome to take that with you. If you're at home, you can follow along on the screen in front of me. We're reading out of the English Standard Version. Picking up in chapter 2, verses 1, and I'll read through verse 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. 
And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray together over God's Word. So, Father, we thank you for the reading of your Word, and we thank you that you remind us that hearing comes by faith, and hearing comes, faith comes by the proclamation of your truth. And Father, we thank you for the reading of your scripture, and we pray now that the Holy Spirit would open our minds and our hearts to have us to understand all that you've given us. Father, may we indeed, as Paul reminded us, not rest in the wisdom of men, the eloquence of speech, the gain of knowledge, but rather the power that comes through the demonstration of the Spirit of God. And Father, it's the Holy Spirit now we ask to move in this place, prick each and every one of our hearts with what we need to understand to draw us closer to you. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. A wonderful thing that we have here that Paul speaks to us in such a way that is so simple and he reminds us that I did not come with lofty speech. Another way to define lofty speech would be preeminence, a high status such as we saw in our inauguration photograph. Someone who had an important position or rank that everyone else would do whatever is called to them. But firstly, I want to share with you, how do we rest in the power of God? What does that mean? I would argue we live in a culture and in a day and even in a church age where we often get so busy with doing things that we often fail to rest. Matter of fact, I know some of you really enjoy the Sabbath because a lot of times you take the opportunity during this sermon and I know you are truly resting on the Sabbath because I'll look out and your eyes are closed. And I think to myself, well, they're either resting on the Sabbath, I can't fault them for that, or they're praying for their pastor, and I choose, to, I choose to pick the later. So if you choose one of those two methods, by all means, God bless you, and we'll continue to pray for you. But I want to share with you, what is rest? Often when we get bound up on this issue of rest, Paul tells us several ways that we can understand what God's rest is. Notice in verse 5 that he reminds the church in Corinth that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. And I hope you came here today not to hear the lack of eloquence from this preacher, but rather to hear what God's Word tells us and to take something that the Holy Spirit has given us through the proclamation of His truth that we can put in our toolbox and leave here. So what I want to give you to take away is four ways that we know that we can rest in God's power. Number one, we can rest in God's power because we can rest in God's Son, Jesus Christ. The last word that Jesus said on the cross of Calvary when he was offered up as the propitiation for the sins of all the world, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, Jesus said this word on the cross. He said, to tell us thy. In that wonderful word, it means it is finished. There's nothing else that needed to be done for the salvation of the world. There's no other thing to come. There's no, any, no other prophecy of messianic fulfillment that needed to happen other than what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary was that yet while we were a sinner, what did he do? Christ demonstrated his love for me by stretching out his arms, by allowing those Roman soldiers to nail him to a cross so that he could truly be high and lifted up and draw all men unto himself. You see, when we understand what we have in Jesus Christ, we understand quickly what we don't have is a, a rule book that we've got to follow in order to maintain our membership in the church. What we realize is we don't have a set of legalistic practices that the Pharisees and Sadducees prided themselves on that keep us bound by certain things, but rather what we truly have is the rest in Jesus Christ, which is freedom. Jesus reminded us in the Gospel of Luke, he says, Come to me, all ye who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give 
you rest. What a beautiful thing that we can understand that our rest comes not even from the things we do, even our worship on Sunday, but our true rest comes from the Son of God, the rest we have in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he, they explain, he explains this element of rest and he, he goes beyond the Sabbath law and he goes beyond the Ten Commandments and he goes beyond the Old Testament and he helps us understand that the true Sabbath can only be found in Jesus. Are you resting in the power of God's Son? God's Son pardoned us and has given us true freedom and the ability to rest. But secondly, I want to share with you that we can rest in the power of God's work. We live in a culture and a society and in a time, and myself included, we work. That's what men and women do. God has given us a task to have dominion over the whole world. And we go through our day-to-day life working and achieving and accomplishing and striving for different things. And often we work so many years of our life hoping to build up enough equity in our 401k or in our stocks and our mutual funds or our retirement plan to wait for that day to come. And then it gets here and we think, okay, now what am I going to do with myself? I go back to work because retirement's not all that great, right? Isn't it wonderful though that we can rest in the fact the work God has done for us is sufficient? We don't have to worry about the 401k running out in God's work, in God's economy. We don't have to worry about whether or not Social Security is going to stay there and whether or not we have to be concerned if our livelihood is going to perish. What we have in the supernatural endowment given to us by God is that we truly can rest in the work that He did on the cross of Calvary through His Son, Jesus. But thirdly, we can rest in the power of God's Word. The power of God's Word. I'm challenged when so many are seeking an answer to truth in today's world, but yet we hold all the things of God's truth in our hand. God's Word truly is the anchor for our soul. We can cast our cares upon it. We can set our sails to it. We can take that, as one famous man said, you can take that to the bank. God's Word will never leave us. It will never fail us. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when we understand that our rest in God's Son, and we can rest with God's work, and we can rest in God's Word knowing that it is faithful and it is true. Now, folks, I will tell you, God has never, I've never heard from God in an audible voice. Some claim that they've had that experience. I have not. But here's what I do know, that daily when I read God's Word, God speaks to me. God's Word infuses into my body. It's like a, an infusion that we get when we need a, a blood transfusion. You ever have someone sick in your family and they have to go to the hospital and they're running low, they're anemic or whatever it is, and they have to have that blood transfusion, and all of a sudden when they get it, they immediately start to perk up. Does that ever happen to you when you read God's Word? We're getting an infusion of the blood of God, the Spirit that dwells in His Word that speaks to our life. And when we hear it, when we read it, it perks up. I was sharing with Pastor Corey today, you would think pastors get to spend all their time in study. And I often share with our church, no, I preach for free. The rest of it you pay me for, right? Because when I get a chance to just open God's Word and just study His Word, man, what a joy that comes over my heart is the power that we have in God's Word when we allow it to be consumed. A gentleman by the name of Don S. Whitney wrote a book called The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. We're going to begin studying and working through that as a church starting next Wednesday. But here's one of the greatest statements he says. He devotes the first two chapters of this book on spiritual disciplines to talking about the intake of God's Word. And he says this, 
There is nothing more important in the spiritual life of a believer than the intake of God's Word. Nothing more important in your life or in my life, if we're Christians, than to open God's Word and to daily have an injection, an infusion of God's Holy Word in our life. There's nothing more important in our life than to to ingest God's Word and to dwell upon it, to meditate upon it, to live out what He's telling us. But fourthly, how do we rest in God's power? We can rest in the power of God's wonder. What do I mean by God's wonder? Folks, there are some things in this Christian life we are not going to understand. There are some things that are laid out in the Bible that are hard to reconcile in our human mind. How this could be, but yet how that could be. We start talking about things like the doctrine of election and predestination and other elements. And here's what I've understood, how I finally have rest as a pastor and as a believer. You know, there's some things I'm just not meant to understand. They are truly the great mystery of God. But what a wonderful thing to know that one day God will make that mystery made known to me and to you when we stand before him and we see him how he is and we get imparted with that understanding that only comes from God. So we rest in God's son, we rest in God's work, we rest in God's word and we rest in the wonder of God that not all things are intended for us to understand here. That need not perplex us. But I want to share with you not only can we rest in the power of God but we can gain wisdom the wisdom of God. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6-9 through 9 now. Let's read those. Follow along with me as I read them out loud. Gaining the wisdom of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it, is, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. What a beautiful text. Paul's quoting, and that last part of verse 9 was coming out of Isaiah chapter 66, verse 4, where the prophet Isaiah had proclaimed that to the truth of Israel as well, to those that were there. What an understanding that it's the wisdom we have in verse 7 that's imparted to us from God. God decreed it before all the ages. Let me give you three facets of godly wisdom. Three facets of godly wisdom that we see. A facet means what makes up godly wisdom. Number one, let me share with you that this is wisdom that is absolutely timeless. Look in verse 7. Paul says, But we impart secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. You see, the wisdom of God is absolutely timeless. If you want to write this down, I don't have the reference on the slide for you, but in Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27, Paul would write this about this timeless wisdom of God. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. You see, Paul understood being a Pharisee of Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin, a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He understood something when he had a Jesus encounter on the Damascus road, that once God blinded him, to help him see. 
Once God came into him, the Holy Spirit enabled him to understand. Paul's writing about this very thing. You see, he was a scholar of the Talmud, the Mishnah, the Old Testament. But yet he was still persecuting the very Messiah he claimed to worship. It wasn't until he had an encounter with Jesus, until wisdom truly came into him and he understood what he was, what he was missing. He goes on to write in Romans 16, 26, But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the man, command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You see, the wisdom of God is timeless. You may not understand what God is doing. You may not understand God's plan. You may not understand and reconcile how God could allow certain things in this world to take place and still be a loving and merciful God. But isn't it wonderful that all things that are happening in this life point us to a search for the Savior? They point us to an answer for what's going on. Whether you are a secular scientist or you're just one of those those atheists, I don't believe atheists really exist, to be honest with you, right? Because you can't possibly know for certain there is no God. You may think there's not a God, but you don't know that for certain. But isn't it funny that every one of us are searching for something? We just end up in different places, some with the right answers, some with the wrong answers. But isn't it wonderful that the wisdom of God gives us the understanding Wisdom that is timeless before the foundations were established, but secondly, wisdom that gives us clarity. You see, when we read the scriptures, what we get from that, when we have a spiritual mind and an ability to understand what God is doing in his greater plan, when we understand the will of God for his creation, we begin to to see clarity in the scriptures. Look in verse 8 with me. None of the rulers of this age understood this. Now, you've got to put that in context for a minute. Paul's talking about the most educated of men, both on the religious side and in the secular side. Paul's talking about the Roman leadership, from Pontius Pilate to Augustus to Festus to all of those who were ruling the nation of Rome, to all of the religious Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, if you would, for Israel. He said, not even them. They didn't even understand it. None of the rulers of this age understood this. Understood what? They didn't understand who the, who the Messiah was. They didn't understand the scriptures of Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He's pretty clear there, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful how we have clarity because of the Holy Spirit in our life. We can look at the scriptures now. Time and time and time and time and time again, I counsel and meet with people who are not saved, who have no professional faith in Christ Jesus, who don't understand that great mystery. And one of the things I ask them when I say, have you ever read the Bible? Well, yeah, I've I've read it every now and then. I said, well, when's the last time you've read it? Well, a few years ago, okay, right? Saying you read the Bible a few years ago expecting you to be full of what you need today is like saying, I ate six months ago, I'm not hungry today. Obviously, that's not a problem. However, the point is we have to have a daily intake, right? We can't rely on what we did two months, three months, or four months ago. We surely don't do that with food, do we? I worked out about a year and a half ago. I'm good. 
It doesn't carry forward, does it? No, it doesn't, right? But isn't it wonderful, the wisdom that we have that God gives us through his word when we partake in it? It gives us understanding. But the person always shares with me, I just can't understand the Bible. I can't understand the Bible. Now, you may have been that way yourself before you had a Damascus Road experience, before Jesus blinded you so you could see. Before, as Isaiah would write, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. What we now see in clarity, because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Somehow, God removes the spiritual blinders of our eyes. That great mystery, when we accept him and repent of our sin, and put our trust and faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we get a spiritual mind. In Acts chapter 13, verses 27... Paul would write, even after the crucifixion of Christ, fairly a short period of time would go by, and those who saw what was going on there still refused to believe. And he says the following, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, him being Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, those who prophesied about Jesus, which are read every Sabbath and fulfilled them by condemning him. Did y'all catch that part? I know it's a little ambiguous perhaps, but the writer in Acts chapter 13, Luke is, is telling us that even though they were reading the scriptures every Sabbath day, they still failed to see the Messiah who they were reading about. Man, when I came across that in my studies, I thought to myself, man, how many remain blind, remain blind today thinking they're religious, but they fail to see the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ they read every Sunday. How often we fail to demonstrate that same mercy and grace to others that Jesus gave to you and I. Clarity tells us the following. Tells us that just because we may be on a church membership roster somewhere, or just because we may attend a Sunday school class, or maybe because we come to church every once in a blue moon, we call them CEO Christians. You ever heard of those? They're not in charge of anything, but they only show up on Christmas and Easter only, right? Just because we get our little dose of religion from time to time, folks, that doesn't mean we have a relationship with Jesus. And we wonder why we can't understand the Scriptures. Well, I don't have any use for that. That guy just rambles on and on. That may be true. However, we know that when we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, he gives us clarity to understand that which so many, to include religious people, secular leaders, they just don't see what God is doing in front of them. But thirdly, three facets of godly wisdom. Not only is the wisdom timeless, does the wisdom give clarity, but notice in verse 9 that God's wisdom provides hope. God's wisdom never leaves us without hope of what's to come. Matter of fact, when you read the New Testament, and I would argue from Genesis to Revelation, the entire story is about giving humanity hope in their creator. Hope that God would restore all things and give them a ministry of reconciliation. We may be drawn back to the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. From Abraham going up to the mountain to sacrifice his son, and his son asking, Where's the lamb for the offering, Dad? Don't worry, son. The Lord will provide as he's drawing the knife out from his back, right? Isaac didn't know that. And he surely didn't know that when he was bound on an altar and he's sitting there wondering, 
this probably ain't going to go in my favor. The Lord will provide. I think he might have said that over and over and over again. And just as Abraham was about to bring down the knife, he looked over. The Lord said, don't touch and harm the boy. Looked over and there was a ram in the bushes caught by its horns. Folks, from the Old Testament through the New Testament, God is trying to reveal to us the hope that we can have in Jesus. The hope we should have in Jesus Isaiah 66, 4, as Paul is quoting that, Isaiah says, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Aren't we grateful that God acted for you and I by sending his son to the Calvary to die on a cruel Roman cross to do something for us that we still can't truly fathom the depths of what God has done for you and me? something that we couldn't do for ourselves. We can't pay our way. We can't pray our way. We can't do our way or work our way into what God has done for us. So we can rest in the power of God and we can gain the wisdom of God. But thirdly, I want to share with you that we can also have the ability to interpret the things of God so we can make that known to others. Truly, I believe all of us can understand the will of God that none should perish, but all should come to eternal life through Christ Jesus. Folks, that is the ultimate will of God for all of creation. Turn with me in Second Corinthians, excuse me, First Corinthians, chapter two, verses ten through sixteen. Verses ten through sixteen. Follow along as I read. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You ought to underline that. If you don't mind writing in your Bible, highlight it, underline it. Anytime you run into someone, a family member, a loved one, a neighbor, a co-worker, someone in a status and position, and you try to share the truth of the gospel with them, and you wonder why they just can't see it, why they can't understand spiritual truths. You look at the statistics on marriage in the family today in our nation and around the world, and it's no wonder that so many are being divorced, so many families are being torn apart by the damage and ravaging of sin. So many children are being raised by single parents because of sin. And we wonder, can't they understand? Why don't they see this? But here's the alarming thing, folks. You know how high the divorce rate is amongst Christians? More than it should be. 40 to 50% of those in church have had or experienced a divorce or were raised in a divorced family. But we have the mind of Christ. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand these things freely given us. Isn't that truthful? But in verse 14, the contrast is 
that the natural person cannot understand the things of God. They've not been reborn. They have no spiritual filter. They have no opening of their mind to understand these spiritual things. Picking back up in verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but he himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? The priesthood of the believer, the ability to understand. Now, we don't always get it right. So let me share with you how, how do we, what do we need? Let me give you three tools to help us interpret the things of God. I was in a conversation a few weeks ago with a rather educated Christian leader, and he, he was very adamant about the, the soul competencies of the believer being able to interpret all they need to know from the Word of God and from the Scriptures. And while I believe soul competency is a true theological fact that we have the ability, isn't it wonderful that God gifts others to help guide us along the way? Because if you left me to my own devices, we would be a train wreck, Amen. But we can learn from one another, and we together as the body, every finger, every arm, every eye, every ear, every nose, every feet, allow us as the body of Christ to be better together and stronger together. My wife and I often, we're sitting on a couch or we're driving together, and all of a sudden I'll say something, and she'll be like, I was just thinking that. You ever, you ever have that experience? And the longer you grow together, the, the more you kind of start thinking what each other is doing, but aren't you glad sometimes she doesn't know what's going through your head? Amen, right? Aren't you glad right now you don't know what some of you are thinking about each other sitting in your pew, right? But the Spirit of God helps us understand the things of God. So let me give you those three tools. Number one, the Spirit of God in you is the first tool. It's the Spirit of God in you that enables you to understand the things of God. If you have no Spirit of God in you, then you'll not be able to understand the things of God other than the fact that you are a sinner condemned to a sinner's hell until you confess your sins before the Father and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's all there is to it, folks. I mean, that's the reality of the state of redemption for all humanity We are all sinners, for there are none righteous, no, not one. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Now, isn't it wonderful that just like when we adopt a child and we take on, that child takes on the the last name of the parents, and the parents gain legal guardianship, and that child is their child. You know, the same thing happens to us when we enter into that relationship with God, that he seals us with a deposit, a down payment of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God takes up residence in you and I. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus reminds his disciples that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. But before he says that to him, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You see, to interpret the things of God, first we must have a spiritual birth. Even Nicodemus in John's gospel, the very beginning of of the gospel of John, Nicodemus, this great teacher of Israel, goes before Jesus late in the evening because he doesn't really want to be seen going and seeing this Jesus of Nazareth, this man from Galilee, because he's not sure what's going on, but he knows something's different about Jesus. And although he was a religious teacher and well-respected in the Sanhedrin, He goes and he begins to ask Jesus about this eternal life. And Jesus says, surely you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how does that happen? How can I be born? Surely I can't go back up into my mother's womb. And Jesus says, you don't get it. 
You've got to be born again, not just by water, but also by the blood. You see, when we have a spiritual birth in Jesus Christ, God gives us the Spirit as a security, as a deposit, as a guarantee. In John chapter 14 and John chapter 15, as Jesus was beginning to tell his disciples about his departure, and as they began to start to grieve, and they began to question, how could the Messiah, we finally found him. We've left everything to follow him. And now he's starting to talk to us about his leaving us. And they were grieved from chapters 13 all the way through chapter 19. The disciples were in this state of hearing constantly about Jesus leaving But he tells them in John 14 and 15 that I must go so the Holy Spirit may come, the Comforter, the Advocate, the Paraclete, the Counselor would come and dwell within you. Jesus made clear that if he stayed, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come. When we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, he gives us at that moment of conversion all of the Spirit of God we will ever need for the rest of our walk. And we will continue to grow in our relationship with Christ. But secondly, the second tool you need is the Word of God in you. You've got the Spirit of God in you. Do you have the Word of God in you? I shared with you Don Whitney's quote earlier, but let me share with you a a real truth. Scripture is the foundation of all spiritual truth. Let me say it again. Scripture is the foundation of all spiritual truth. Not your feelings, not your opinions, not your preferences, Not even your understanding is the foundation of your spiritual truth. Scripture is the foundation for our spiritual truth. It's the Word of God in us that we need in order to rightly interpret the Word of God. Well, how do we grow in that? Well, be a good student of the Word of God, right? First, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, For all Scripture is God-breathed. And it has a specific function in our life to help us in our discipleship and our understanding of being a follower of Christ. It's the Word of God in us. It's the Spirit of God in us. And thirdly, let me share with you, it's the work of God in you. The work of God. Here's how Jesus would explain the work of God in us. As he's talking to his disciples, those who were following him, and you've got to understand the culture of that time frame. If you had servants or someone that waited on you, or even employees today that work for you, Now, most employees don't really know what's happening in the manager's office. Doesn't mean they don't think they know, but they don't probably really know all of the decisions that are being made to keep a business afloat or the difficulties of the decisions that management have to make and the the changes in the structure of an organization. They don't always know that. And sometimes they feel left out in the dark or they, they presume some things, but they're paid to do a certain thing. Same thing in Jesus' time frame with his disciples. They were in a place where they didn't always know exactly what was happening. And here's how Jesus shares the change in relationship that the disciples have with the Heavenly Father. John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants. You don't just work for the man anymore. You with me? He says, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. That's the Son of God, Jesus, author and perfecter of our salvation, that is now telling his disciples, his followers, that you were once just servants, but now you are my friends. 
And what I have known from the Father, I have made known to you. Folks, we know everything that corporate management is doing behind the scenes. We have an ability to understand the greater plan of God's will and God's plan for, for humanity because God, through the Holy Spirit, through his word, and through the work he is doing in our lives, has made that known to us. Paul would write in his second letter to the Corinthian church, we'll spend a little time on in a few weeks, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Folks, aren't you glad to be a friend of Jesus? What a great thing for us to understand. We can interpret the things of God, the tools we need, the Spirit of God dwelling in us, taking up residency. The Word of God growing in us as we read His truths daily, as we saturate ourselves with His truth. And thirdly, the Word, the work of God that He's doing in us. Aren't you glad you're not where you were yesterday in your walk with God? Aren't you glad that you're not still in the same place you were in before you accepted Christ? And that today you can look back almost with clarity and see how God was moving in your life at that point. I was asked this question years ago, and I always find it challenging in my own walk, and I think you may as well. But I was asked this question. Are you as close to God today as you were the day you accepted Jesus in your salvation? And the, the author of that statement followed it up by saying, if not, you're backslidden. I said, man, that's tough. That's a tough truth, isn't it? If you're not as close today as you were the moment you accepted Jesus and rejoiced with a glow of salvation, then you couldn't help but tell it to everybody that you accepted Christ. You wanted the world to know. Much like Paul when he left his little room there in Damascus. He ate, drank, regained his strength, and immediately went to the synagogue and began to preach and proclaim Christ Jesus. He says, if you're not as close to Jesus that day, that week, you might just be backslidden a little bit. Isn't it wonderful that we can come to a God who loves us? So let me close with this illustration. You saw it as we began. You see, that's not how Paul came to the Corinthian church. That's not how Jesus came to the world. Jesus, while he was the King of kings and Lord of lords and author and creator of all things, who was and is and is to come, the lion who became a lamb so that we may be saved. He didn't come with great pomp and circumstance. Despite the crowd singing Hosanna, Hosanna, as he comes into Jerusalem on that great Passion Week, as he knows what awaits for him is the death, burial, and his resurrection on the cross. See, Jesus came like this. Jesus came giving it all. And those who worshipped him, those first disciples, as they looked at Jesus' lifeless body on the cross, they realized just what they had participated in. And while they still didn't understand it all, the great mystery, in just a couple of days they would go to a tomb where Jesus' body was laid by, yes, that same Nicodemus who didn't understand the things of God, had a hand in burying Jesus in that tomb. And now on that resurrection morning, it became very clear to them that the Son of Man had indeed risen. And it was in that hope 
that we are here today reading the very word of God. The very letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians is to lift up not wisdom and lofty speech, but to lift up the one person who will draw all men unto himself, and his name is Jesus. Do you know Jesus today? Do you know that if you died and you stood in the presence of God Almighty, which that will happen for all of us, if you want to bet against that, I wouldn't wager on that. But if you stood before our God Almighty today and he asked you, why should I let you into the kingdom of heaven? Can you say without a shadow of a doubt, it's because I've placed my trust and faith in your son, Jesus Christ. I've asked for the forgiveness of my sins. And Lord, while I have failed tremendously, Lord, I've tried to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. It's by your son. It's the only thing I have to offer is what Jesus has done for me. Folks, if you can't say those things, I promise you the scriptures tell us that you will hear, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. But Jesus says, all that profess me before men, I will profess you before the Father in heaven. And it's our prayer today that you know Jesus is your personal Savior. We have a slide at the end of this that if you're watching at home, if you're here and you don't know, find one of our staff, one of our deacons, one of our leaders, a security team member outside, one of our worship leaders, myself, Pastor Corey. Say, hey, I need to understand a little bit more because I know I don't have a relationship with Jesus. But I feel the Spirit of God calling me into that. See us after this service. We'd be happy to talk with you about that. Let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your truth, and we thank you for the, the word that you've given us through this chapter. And Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us from the beginning of time to through eternity. Father, we thank you for Christ Jesus, the author and perfecter of our salvation. Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of your scriptures. And Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ. If there's anyone here that does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, Father, we pray the Holy Spirit would convict them of their need for, for salvation and you would draw all men unto yourself. Father, may they make that public profession of faith that Jesus is Lord of my life. Father, we thank you for this day of worship. Be with us in all that is said as we leave this place. Keep us safe, keep us fit, and keep us ready to proclaim your truth to those who need it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.